Hello and welcome to this week's episode of Crimes Against Art, Edge of the Crowd's Art Crimes podcast. Joining me today as always is the lovely Isabel. How are you, Isabel? I'm going well, Michelle. How are you? Oh, it's been a wilden time. Like this Melbourneian summer, spring summer, Mm. not my favourite. Do not recommend. Not off to a great start. Mm, Yeah. This like the mm, rain. (laughs) <laughs> At least it's not raining while we're recording, though. No, I think we've had quite a nice weekend so mm-hmm. far um, in terms of weather. We've managed to stay off the worst of it. Exactly. Today's episode's going to be a bit of a lengthy one because a pretty juicy saga that has unfurled throughout the year. Um, we are going to unpack it all, hopefully, aren't we? Yes, I hope so. But it seems like it just keeps unpacking as we've been researching, hasn't it? God, it's just lengthy and lengthy. And, like, here's the thing that we're going to learn uh, is that court documents are long and uh, crimes involve a lot of them that Mm. get unfurled intermittently. So the timeline of everything gets jumbled very quickly. Oh, that does make things difficult. We just want to do a little podcast, doesn't it? (laughs) Oh, God. We are but a little podcast. They're in our way. All we want to do is just chat. And yet there's court documents. Yes, things get spicier and spicier, mm-hmm. and more entangled and more complex as we investigate. Yes. But yes, we should probably reveal what we're talking about today. Yes. Uh, and that is, know. yes, and that is the what went down at the Orlando Museum of Art. The Orlando Museum of Art, which is, to clarify, it is in Orlando, America, is it not? Orlando elsewhere. Or Orlando. <laughs> God, that reminds me of the fact that there's a Melbourne in Florida. Yeah, it just comes up, doesn't it? No, because yeah. I was telling I was telling someone about like the this episode, this week's episode and about Orlando, and they're like, where is Orlando? I was like, just the usual one. <laughs> I haven't heard of any other. <laughs> the only Orlando I know is Orlando Bloom. <laughs> <laughs> That's what we happened. won't be talking about Orlando Bloom's crimes. Definitely. I don't think he's good at any art crimes, but I I don't think he's involved in this saga at the very least. But okay. We'll see. He might come up. It's all a web anyway. <laughs> um, but yes. Did I ever tell you about the time when I was in Paris and I was visiting? Oh, no. Was it Paris? I think it was Paris. I was visiting a museum. It might have been Dorsey. Um, yeah. And when I was getting my ticket the person behind the counter was like, so where are you from? And I said, Melbourne. And their first response was, oh, in Florida. And I'm like, that's not the important Melbourne. That's so bizarre. Oh, Melbourne. I'm going to start introducing myself as I'm from Melbourne, Florida, just to. (laughs) Yeah, right. The alternative is actually just being really clarificatory, like the Australia one, not the Florida one. I was just so surprised that that was the first one that he thought of. My accent, I would say, is Australian not Floridian Mm. so it was just interesting I was just like this is the first time I've had to clarify this there must be a large Floridian contingent that visit the Dorsey perhaps yes tourists they Mm. can be from anywhere and a lot of them are from America Melbourne Melbourne Melbourne, Florida Florida specifically but yes what went down in Florida you ask well they wanted they they had all these plans didn't they they wanted to put on a Basquiat exhibition um and they and and a Basquiat exhibition they did put on they sure did (laughs) however that's where things started unraveling so we will be unpacking we will be unpacking the Basquiat saga for you Mm. today um and unpacking is the right word to use because uh, shipping and packing of, uh, makes a cameo in the story as well. Shipping and packing, that's the first one. Shipping, shipping and packing. Let's first of all talk about this exhibition. Yeah. So um, the exhibition was going to be called uh, Heroes and Monsters yeah. uh, of Jean-Michel Basquiat. Uh, Jean-Michel Basquiat is an American artist active and contemporaries with Andy Warhol. I kept reading these articles where they're like, he was called the Black Picasso. Um, and I was like, disgusting. Uh, get get no. Picasso's name out of your mouth. Don't Not you a vibe. Don't associate him with Basquiat. Don't yeah. you dare put that in, out there in the world. Yeah. How would you describe Basquiat, Isabel? I think he is like 80s New York 
up and coming, sort of moved on from abstract expression by that point to be a bit more neo-expressionism. Is that what they get up to? I think so. His works, a lot of it is very scrawly. He uses a lot of words and he has these recurring motifs that he likes to use, which is also a thing that Mr. Andy Warhol did. Yeah. So I guess along with Andy Warhol, they both sort of draw on popular culture, street culture, that sort of thing in making their art. Yes. So he is described as being a neo-expressionist. Um, he did a lot of graffiti, yeah. and I think that was very fundamental to his work. But he also was very in touch with kind of urban uh, hip-hop culture, and that features heavily in his work as well. He is probably one of the most well-known black artists from that period, of which there weren't that many. He had that kind of raucous lifestyle that you would expect of someone who was hanging out in New York in the 80s, I guess. Yeah, yeah. And what do you think of his art? Most of the work I've seen of his was in that interview exhibition a few years ago. Mm-hmm. And, I mean, it's not what, not like my favourite mm-hmm. sort of artist, but it is very, like, impactful and evocative of that era, of a place and a time, and I think it still sort of continues to speak to that and speaks to a lot of people these days, as seen by all the Uniqlo club collaborations <laughs> and anything else that you see his art artwork on. Honestly, increasing mm. amounts of collaborations. But mm. I I will say that I do own I think one t shirt, maybe two t shirts from that collaboration. Very good. Yeah, the crown one. I did not buy anything from the the gift shop when the NGV exhibition was on. No. no, no, I don't know what they had. Maybe a little pocket mirror or something. Keto. Yeah. Magnet. Yeah. <laughs> oh my god. This, um, this is going to be a side note, but you should know this. When I was at the NGA, they had um a whole bunch of Piccinini stuff in the gift yeah. shop. P- Patricia Piccinini temporary tattoos. Nice. That's a good one. Right. I hope they had Basquiat temporary tattoos. That that would be good. That would be on brand for Basquiat. Another important thing about Basquiat, though, in relation to these collaborations, was that Basquiat passed away relatively young of drug overdose. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's a lot of questions always about, like, how Basquiat would have responded to kind of the way that we treat his work now and all this merchandising and that kind of thing. But he was, like, pretty into marketing himself, as is. So mm-hmm. I think that it would have been fine. It would have been fine with it. It's a bit of fun, guys. So Orlando, they're wanting to put on this exhibition. Now, what would be, what would you want to put on an exhibition of Basquiat? What would be the main thing you'd be wanting? You would want some Basquiat works. Right. <laughs> right. And that's where it gets really dicey. So the scandal that happened this year is the manifestation of like a couple of years of investigation of this crop of works. It is timed with a key character in the story who is Aaron de Groft, who is the director of the Orlando Museum of Art. It was one of the things that he had been previously looking into before he got the post. And this was one of the really promising exhibitions um, or like groups of works that he would be bringing to the museum as the new director. So it's very much tied with him. But also that does mean that there are a lot of stakes in relation to these works and their authenticity that makes him have a huge conflict of interest, I guess, in terms of what he wants to say about these works. So there are 25 of these paintings were going to be revealed basically in exhibition, I think, for the first time um, in this exhibition, which is a significant achievement, especially because there's so much interest in Basquiat. The story behind them is that they were found in the storage unit of a Hollywood screenwriter. I'm sure he was going to, like, there's this great story behind it. He wants to show off these works. There's been a lot of investigation into them already. So it's going to be a fun time. The exhibition opened on February the 10th of this year and was slated to go until June next year, 2023. So pretty lengthy, pretty significant. Mm-hmm. Um, Would have been a fun time. These were works that were purportedly created in late 19. 19- 82, which is when he was already under Larry Gagosian, gallerist extraordinaire. In February already, there were a lot of questions about the authorship of these works and 
whether or not they were legit that was already a concern that they had and it was like a long-running discussion so um in hindsight a lot of the paperwork we've seen has come from like uh, 2021, but also apparently this these works got onto the FBI's radar in like 2013, something like that. And this is what yeah. I mean by messy timelines. We did not see these documents, or well, like I still haven't seen them with my own eyes. I've just read a lot of reporting on them. Mm. But until this year, when a lot of the content from that investigation was revealed, but um, a subpoena is pretty substantial, which is what comes later, uh, and that led to the reveal of a lot of these. Uh, uh, these documents as well, detailing everything that went down. Very good. Very exciting. But by the time the sort of the exhibition opened, people were sort of chill with the fact that they were Basquiat works. I think there was a sense of like legitimization that came from them, where it was the fact that this museum was putting up these works and was willing to stand behind it, and usually large in this case like state institutions do hold that kind of power and that kind of sway towards the legitimization of works yeah so i think people just took it being like well if it's in the exhibition probably legit yeah yeah yeah, you would think that yeah i would say so i mean when we were discussing the node locale sort of about the idea of provenance Mm-hmm. and the paper trail of ownership but also like just the role of institutions in sort of formalizing that process increasing their value on the market yeah. or like at least sort of establishing that it is a basket and it is a significant piece to be in, in a museum yeah yeah. Mm-hmm. So let's talk a little bit about that legitimization and the paperwork and the paper trail and all this provenance stuff, because a lot of those those details we actually have this time for this case, Yay. whereas in Nodler's it was like we didn't really know what the authentication experts were saying and what kind of evidence that they were relying upon. So the story is that they were sold directly by Basquiat to Tad Mumford, who wrote for MASH and was yeah. um, the producer of that show as well. So He wasn't not a part of the Mumford & Sons, though. No, he's not part of Mumford & Sons, unfortunately. He was one of the few black screenwriters working in network television at the time, and also he was very successful. So he probably would have been around the same circles as Basquiat. He would have had, you know, the, the, the right kind of vibes and connections in order to meet Basquiat. Um, not like so, just us, run Yeah. Not a rando who's representing a gajillionaire friend of theirs and selling works to big gallery. (laughs) (laughs) So so we've got like, you know, we've got the right people in the right sort of place. Like, you know, yeah. Exactly. These works were uh, Basquiat purportedly sold to him for 5,000 US dollars in cash, um, which is about 14,000-ish today. And this all happened behind Larry Gagosian's back, which is very fun. (laughs) But that's also where you get that ambiguity because now if you could get Gagosian to be like, oh, yeah, I remember commissioning these works, asking yeah. for these works, yeah. Um, yeah. That, that sort of thing. It's a basket. Yeah. <laughs> At that point, right? So how, therefore, do we know that these were works that um, were by Basquiat mm-hmm. then? For Aaron de Groff, the most compelling piece of evidence is a poem that Mumford purportedly wrote in 1982 that commemorates the creation of these artworks really lovely yeah I think I'm gonna start you know rather than having I don't know doing any paperwork like Mm -hmm. doing my tax return I'll just like no I'm gonna write a poem yep of how I spent my money this year and take it ATO you can that's evidence of my income for the year here's my poem Yeah, so he writes about a lot of, like, good vibes that he's been having and his successes and, you know, having a good time, basically. Like I said, a great poem to write for your tax accountant. Yeah, Um, great time. So it also refers to his work in the 70s, doing voice work for Sesame Street, like a character based on him for Sesame Street, his um, scripts for the MASH series finale, and, quote, 25 paintings bring riches. And then also he mentions him and Basquiat presumably uh, having a shared spirit as they are no longer outsiders, industry insiders, golden crowns receiving. Uh, We film, we write, we film, we paint. Perfect. Well, that's a very lovely poem. I quite like that one. Yeah. Tis the season of like big depresso energy. We got Mm. a 
write some poetry about some good vibes that we've had, some good things, some great achievements. So, you know, we should get on to that. And there are a few like bits in the poem that do reference Basquiat and his work. The Crown sort of one uh, comes to mind. Yeah, I did like Kindred Spirits. Like I feel like if I read that, knowing a bit about Basquiat, I'd be like, yeah, this seems like Mm -hmm. we have a little... And a little illusion. Yes, but like as evidence, kind of weak. Oh, yes, absolutely. (laughs) Um, Very cinematic, very poetic, beautiful, but weak from a grounds of evidence. Yeah, it's like, excuse me, you're on, I have an acrostic poem I wrote in my (laughs) my fifth grade English (laughs) class. Please take that as evidence for where I was on the night of the 25th. (laughs) Yeah. And this was a time when you could have had a more robust paper trail. It's not like, you know, when you were doing like really, really deep historical research into times yeah. when note-taking and record-keeping was a lot looser. I mean, they had receipts then. I mean, it was the 80s. I don't really know what, how it worked then, but, like, they had receipts. That is all things where you go, shh, shh, when you do your credit card. Exactly. The 25 artworks then disappeared for three decades. Yeah. Isn't that fun? Just, like, nothing about them, um, no records of, like, what's been happening to them. They're just in the ownership of Mumford. So they resurfaced in 2012 when Munford was having a couple of uh, financial issues and he had failed to pay the bill on his storage unit. So whatever was in there was uh, auctioned off. As a result, the Basquiat's was part of the stuff, but there was also like a lot of baseball memorabilia and uh, TV industry ephemera. Yeah, nice. So I too forget I had yeah. 25 priceless pieces of artwork in sitting in storage. That's only increased in price after he's died. Yeah. They were purchased by uh, William Force and mm-hmm. Lee Mengen, I'm going to say. Uh, so uh, William Force kind of does this like treasure hunts and looks in auction lots and tries to pick out treasures as his shtick and uh, Lee Mengen was his financial backer. So they make their money on finding mislabeled items, like how we go thrifting to find Chanel. Yeah, absolutely. I feel like surely that's a show that's on, what channel would that be on? Like seven, seven, oh, eight. Oh, Fake or Fortune. Fake or Fortune. No, 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 no. no I'm no. thinking more like American pickers or like that sort of thing. Yeah, yeah, they yeah. definitely have ones where they just go through random, um, yeah, like storage containers that are yeah. being, being released because owners weren't paid. Yeah. And often, no, I've never watched an episode where they've found anything worth anything. So exactly. good on them. Yeah. So they saw this, they, they saw these works, they were like, hmm, looks interesting, has potential. Um, and they bought all 25 of them for $15,000. So if you think about like the millions that basket go, baskets go for, both Mumford and now Force and Mengen got baskets for a bargain. Yeah, that seems bizarre. But also at the same time, that seems like a lot of money for random artworks yeah colorful cardboard so yeah some fun numbers games going on mm. gagosian was asked about these works yeah and uh he says he finds the scenario of the story very highly unlikely okay so kind of when this exhibition is on that's the skepticism that's there this is your back and forth you have a poem you have Gagosian saying this but they were done behind his back and like that's the kind of thing Basquiat would have done yeah (laughs) like probably so it's like you know plausible but the fact that like there is no one who's able to corroborate this robustly is a problem um and we have a poem and someone who was probably doing a lot of drugs in the 80s (laughs) exactly um so uh and de Groff says uh my reputation is at stake as well I, and I have absolutely no doubt these are Basquiat's. So foreshadowing. And he has the support of the institution. Another character who's going to come into play a lot is Cynthia Brumbach, who is the chairwoman of the museum's board. Okay, sure. So, so like, we have this exhibition, all the works are up. Bit, you know, slight sketch start to it, but, like, they're in the institution now. How does it all unravel from there? How does it all unravel? Well, first of all, the exhibition is going great for the museum. Excellent. High attendance uh, numbers. Everyone yeah. Oh, yeah. Some statistics from the 27th of March. So the exhibition would have been open for one and a half months by then. Mm-hmm. 
attendance has increased by 108% over the same time last year and 57% when compared to pre-pandemic years. Uh, Membership has also shown an increase up 31% from pre-pandemic times. The gift shop, which is stuck with an array of Basquiat merchandise, has seen sales jump 145% over 2021. Um, And registration for youth summer camps, some of which are inspired by Basquiat, is up 236% from last year. Well, what a success. And it is kind of a blockbuster exhibition, so that kind of thing definitely tracks. Cynthia Brumbach kind of puts it this way, attendance is up, diversity is up, shop sales are up. People are enjoying themselves, which is very important to us. It supports our mission. That's good. That's good. Let's link it back to the strategy of today. So, yeah. Museum goers, very enthusiastic. Yeah. Fast forward a few months in Mm -hmm. May. This is when the FBI's art crime team get involved. Boom, boom, boom. Dun, 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 dun. They need a little theme song, I reckon, the art crime squad. Yeah. We should get them on the podcast. Yeah, honestly, we should. So... The investigation has occurred, and to give you a sense of how long these things take, they had first subpoenaed the Orlando Museum of Art in July of 2021, July 27th. Okay, so it's like a good eight months. Yeah, like a, a, like a solid while. Yeah. Um, <laughs> a solid while. Just, they've just been like, you know, these things take time. You need to verify bureaucracy, state. Yeah. Like, you know, institutions. They could have just uh, sent a federal institutions. Quicker. Yeah. Special agents had been interviewing people in the art and design worlds, focusing on the paintings and their primary owners. In the subpoena, the FBI demanded any and all communications between the museum's employees and the owners of the artworks, purported to be by artists from Michel Vosky Art. Mm. So now we have our fun little word games. Any and all. Any and all, please. And the experts. The New York Times received a copy of the subpoena and did a lot of reporting about this. It's really funny, though, because this article comes out in May. The initial article that covers this as well, that just notes the opening of the show and stuff, the way that the um, Orlando Museum of Art responds is via, like, LinkedIn comments. Oh, LinkedIn comments, not even, like, a post, just, like, a comment. LinkedIn comments, LinkedIn, uh, and, like, they're unsigned, so you don't know, like, if it's oh. from DeGroff directly, but they're just like, the New York Times reporting is inaccurate. And I'm like. Why is this on LinkedIn? Yeah, like, at Orlando Museum of Art, art discourse happens on Instagram. Yeah, exactly. Like, do those Instagram comments, you know, do a story. LinkedIn's not the place for the art world. No. I hate LinkedIn. It. <laughs> It makes me, it fills with a certain very specific sort of dread whenever I go onto it. Yes. And I seem to have to go onto it a fair bit. But yes. it's just this very specific sense of dread and unease on LinkedIn. Oh, I stand by the fact that I think that LinkedIn is the worst of the social media platforms. I think um, it's a social media platform. Exactly. Exactly. Oh, it's so bad. It's designed in such a way that 15 minutes of LinkedIn is enough to fill you with existential dread. It was designed that way. Oh, it's terrible, terrible, terrible. So that's already, like, not great in terms of handling this because we've had denial, we've had the sales are good, and now we have LinkedIn comments. Yep. So they're really trying to brush it under the rug. Yeah. Here we get introduced to our third character who um, has partial ownership of the works. He is a Los Angeles trial lawyer called Pierce O'Donnell. He, in 2016, represented Amber Heard in her divorce from Johnny Depp. Right, so he's he's a bit of a, he's a character. And he has since also represented Angelina Jolie in her divorce from Brad Pitt. So he's definitely into the celebrities. Yes. He likes the high-profile cases. Yeah. He ha- purchased an interest in six of the 25 works and has also purportedly hired a whole bunch of experts Mm-hmm. to uh try to authenticate them yeah however most of the backstory still comes basically from uh force and mangan so we have a poem and some vibes <laughs> <laughs> poems your honor <laughs> the defendant your honor. 
has a poem and they say the vibes are superb. Yes. <laughs> it is revealed at this point in the reporting that the vibes were not superb. <laughs> the vibes were not superb because Mangan and Force have both served times in prison. Between them, crimes include felony drug trafficking under different names. Mm-hmm. Pierce O'Donnell has also served prison time for pulling shenanigans. So, but to clarify, if you're a lawyer and you've pulled shenanigans, you're still allowed to be a lawyer? Depends on the nature of the shenanigans in the area of law you practice in, I guess. Surely all shenanigans should buy you from being a lawyer. You would think. I mean, other things are a bit more loosey-goosey, but... Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I had to think really deeply about the timeline. I'm like, did you get did you get imprisoned before or after you represented Amber Heard in the During divorce? <laughs> he might have been defending her from prison. Like. Yeah. Um, because, and then I was like, but wait a second. Like, the split of Brangelina was much more recent. That was, yeah, like 2017, I think. Yeah. I don't know what it like, actually. Yeah. So, you know, that doesn't matter. The FBI presumably also talked to a bunch of people who knew Mumford to -hmm. see if they had any whiffs of this. Apparently, a lot of his friends and relatives also aren't convinced about these Basquiat's that he apparently owned. Did they look back through their poetry to see if they (laughs) recorded it in their own family poetry Bible? I don't know. Let me look back on my journal and see if if I have a poem. Yeah, they say that Mumford... didn't really like ever talk about contemporary art or show any interest in it and less so Basquiat yeah (laughs) if they were meant to be kindred spirits and best mates he would come up at some point yeah the other problem is so this was a typed poem okay and someone who worked on mash with Mumford said that Mumford didn't type (laughs) uh Oh no! So you can't get handwriting experts in either, because that would also be a bit of fun shenanigans. Yep. Uh, so yeah, so like you can look at a lot on old typewriters, just because the keys have to be very unique from machine to machine. So you can mm-hmm. actually do that kind of forensic analysis. Yeah. I don't know if they did. So he just rocked up and wrote things. Tad wrote on a legal pad. We started back in the seventies before there were computers, and a lot of people sent stuff to typists. That didn't change in the 80s either. Sheldon Bull is claiming in the 80s that he had never seen Mumford type a single letter. Tad was as technophobic as anyone I've ever met. He did not own a computer. What's does he is and to this day does he has he ever touched a keyboard? <laughs> I don't know. Is he aware of the internet? I'm really intrigued. Right, like all credit and all power to technophobes. Mumford died in 2018, so would have seen a lot of the developments of technology since then. Mm. Mayhaps he owned a computer, but we don't know for sure. That can be a question that we pose to other people. Maybe we'll find out details later um, when this gets turned into a documentary. (laughs) I just want a whole episode of the documentary just dedicated to his technophobia. Yeah. Did he own a computer? Did he own a computer? Does he know? Could he work an iPad is the real question. Maybe he couldn't. Let's now talk about the shipping and packing. Shipping and packing. Shipping and packing. So what did you know about the shipping and packing in relation to this story? Um, I remember that FedEx sort of comes up mm-hmm. as uh, one of the artworks was sort of painted on, was it a FedEx box or yes, uh, some cardboard with the FedEx logo on? Yep. And that during when they're trying to authenticate it. They, um, they had to get in an expert from, no, not an expert, probably just like an employee from FedEx to clarify that the logo was not in use. Yeah. Was in, was in, introduced, I believe, like six years after Basquiat's death. Yeah. 1994. So thank you, big packing and shipping and packing industry for having some sort of record <laughs> that isn't just an acrostic poem. Yeah. So investigative analysis into typography, the typeface of the imprint based on universe, the font mm-hmm. In question that was designed and used in, I don't know when it was designed, but it was used by FedEx in 1994. So that's six years after Basquiat died, let alone 1982. Mm. Yes, this was clarified. Yes. (laughs) How Basquiat acquired the new logo. This was clarified by Lyndon Leader 
who is uh, an independent brand expert, but he and he he had redesigned the logo and typefaces when he was working at an advertising firm. So close proximity, good expertise. Yeah. In response to this, apparently, what Aaron de Groft has said is that there is research that shows that Federal Express, which is FedEx's full name, which I'm like, that tracks, but also I don't recognize you. We need to be full. We'll give them the respect they deserve, Federal Express. Yeah. So he says he has research that shows that uh, FedEx used various fonts on its shipping materials throughout the 1980s. So there was variance in some of the stuff. Um, And so in order to try to like say like you know there was a possibility it was around at this time right we've got we've got a bit of doubt yeah Lyndon Leader said in an interview in response to that that um such a notion was ridiculous because the company has long had strict guidelines for its typeface and other graphic designs I have some brand guidelines good good you know branding is important yes especially in the 80s the artworks various owners did Mm -hmm. commission a handwriting expert to analyze the works. Yeah. This expert's name, James Blanco. And James Blanco identified signatures on many of the 25 paintings. Mm-hmm. So that's fun. Many. Many. So in 2018 and 19, there were also these signed statements by a curator, Diego Cortez, that declared these paintings as true Basquiat's. Cortez was a member of the Basquiat Estates Authentication Committee which no longer exists. I find one of the most interesting aspects yeah. of the case mm-hmm. is how it just, like, just disbanded. You'd, th- you'd think sort of the role of the estate would be fairly committed or, you know, plays great value in having a robust committee yeah. of authenticating words. So to not have that seems, like, bizarre. It's yeah. It's too too convoluted or something or like too much risk of being sued I think was yeah um, it was a financial thing in mm. the end it was like the risk of being sued and the amount of money that needed to like be put in to make this work was very high and also it wasn't just the basket committee I think like a whole bunch of committees no longer exist Mm. so it that is a problem and it's gonna mean that we're probably it's not the end for these kinds of cases we're gonna see many of them pop up especially for like as new different artists become the hot new thing and have their works rise in price yeah. from this era where these ambiguities can exist in this way. Yeah. All right. So we're squabbling, we're investigating. No. We're, we're going back and forth. We're trying to justify. Like it got gotten to this point where the museum was just like, don't think this is worth it. This is getting like way out of hand. Yeah. And they were going to close the exhibition early on uh, June the 30th, 2022. But think about the gift shop sales. But think about the gift shop sales. Well, uh, in, a, in a great little like stealth move, apparently, the FBI chooses to seize the entire exhibition of works on June the 24th. Very good. Smart decisions. I also found out at this stage that this these works were um, going to be exhibited in Italy after their stint at the Orlando Museum of Art. So they were about to go on a world tour. Yay. But no longer. They have been seized. All of them have been seized. All of them. Snatched. In the affidavit for the search warrant, it is mentioned that one of the investigators had interviewed Mumford in 2014 when he was alive and learned that Mumford never purchased Basquiat artwork and was unaware of any Basquiat artwork being in his storage locker. But his poem. But his poem. (laughs) That's so interesting. So, like, now the plot thickens because Mm. they just wrote this guy in. (laughs) (laughs) He was just chilling, writing his poems, and now he's been roped in this art crime case. Yeah. Uh, Mumford also told this investigator that one of the artwork's owners had pressured him to sign documents claiming that he had owned the collection, which would help establish the painting's authenticity, even offering in an email to give him a 10% interest in the net proceeds. Well, that seems dodgy. It also says that in 2017, a year before his death, that Mumford had signed a declaration in the presence of federal agents stating that at no time in the 1980s or at any other time did I meet with Jean-Michel Basquiat 
and at no time did I acquire or purchase any paintings by him. Well, that seems like a pretty strong statement to make and a pretty definitive statement to make as well. Right. So now we have an empty gallery. We have some very intense, strong statements that have been overseen by federal agents that really are going far in proving that these works are not legit. I would say at this point it's pretty irrefutable or you would have to do so much in order to try to overturn the impression that these works are legit. Yeah, like you would need someone to authenticate the works as Basquiat's for this to remotely make sense. Cue the ghost of Basquiat. (laughs) (laughs) And that's when he comes in. (laughs) Time-travelling ghost of Basquiat. That's when they're going to be too bored in court. (laughs) Let's try Yeah, I mean, you've got very strong statements from, like, a key member of the story saying that it didn't happen. So I don't know how they can turn it around to, you know, even though they do have a poem, I'm not yep. going to refute that as evidence, but they're going to have to do a lot a lot of other work. Exactly. So then, five days later, 29th <laughs> of June, Aaron de Groft loses his job. Oh, no. Well, I mean, that's fair enough. I feel like if you put together an exhibition and, like, half the works are probably fake, like, ugh, like that's pretty, that's the main part of your job, mate. Exactly. He's been ousted. Cynthia Brumbach makes a statement to that effect and she adds, you know, the museum's trustees were extremely concerned about several issues um, <laughs> regarding the everything about this exhibition. Like, <laughs> well, we can see that now. Yeah. We were concerned, like, yeah, yes, you should be, definitely. Yep. One of the things that caused concern was, like, you know, maybe this was just a big mistake, huge mistake, gargantuan mistake. 25 mistakes. One or two, I'll give them a few fakes. Like, I feel like there should be, you know, like um, when you submit uni assignments and you get, like, the plagiarism. Oh, yeah. So you're allowed, like, 80% or something. Yeah. has to be your own work and 20% can be plagiarised. Yep. I think that should, you know, that should be safe with excellent. 80% if they're real good, 20% can be fake and, like, you yep. know, it's a good margin to help have. Yeah. But there were also questions being raised about his professional conduct throughout all of this in relation to this exhibition. Jordana Moore Segeze, I'm going to say, is an art history professor who was hired uh, to provide her professional assessment of the 25 works. So she was brought in prior and was one of the things that, Aaron de Groft and a lot of the people involved kind of used as kind of their statement to say like this person does believe that these works are legit and Jean-Michel Basquiat is one of her focal research areas so yeah. she's written and published books about Basquiat and that kind of thing in the affidavit he she was referred to as expert two expert two <laughs> yeah and she says that her work has been mischaracterized by the statements that everyone is making trying to use her as a linchpin in saying that these works are legit she was paid $60,000 for her expert opinion and kind of looking into these works. That's a significant amount of money. Yes. Let's start with the professional conduct and then we'll say what she actually said. Mm-hmm. She asked the museum to have her name not be associated with the exhibition and sent an email to that effect to Aaron de Groft. And de Groft responded with, quote, you want us to put out there you got sixty grand to write this? Okay, then shut up. You took the money. Stop being holier than thou. <laughs> Sometimes I worry that my emails at work are, you know, or I spend a lot of time trying to be very conscientiously professional mm-hmm. in my work emails. Yeah. But then you see that and you're like, well, maybe, maybe there's been... <laughs> maybe I just may- got to be straight up. Yeah. <laughs> He's insistent that these paintings are genuine and he threatened to share the details of that payment with her employer, with the threat, do your academic thing and stay in your limited lane. <laughs> That's my new tagline. Yeah. I'm doing my academic thing and staying in my limited lane. That's sort of funny because like, I feel like a lot of academics didn't acknowledge their limited lane to begin with. Yeah. Like that's the whole point. We were like, we're very specialised in a very specific area. We have a limited lane. Mm-hmm. So we're going to do our academic thing and stay in our limited lane. Exactly. Not my area. <laughs> do your job. I do mine. So they were basically saying that she had attributed all 25 works to Basquiat. Right. But she releases a statement on the 8th of July, which Mm -hmm. pretty much kind of is very lengthy and clarifies what exactly she said 
in relation to this. And it is not, surprise, surprise, it is not that all 25 works are legit. So what'd she say? What'd she say that they can twist to say that was 25 works were legitimate? She says, in 2017, I was retained by an unscrupulous attorney, P.S. O'Donnell, uh, acting on behalf of a group of undisclosed art collectors to analyze 27 potential Basquiat works referred to as the Basquiat Venice Collection. Mr. O'Donnell represented himself as an attorney for owners of the works. I trusted and relied on Mr. O'Donnell as an independent representative for the owners. He did not disclose that he was one of the owners and that he stood to benefit financially from the sale of the collection. I was not tasked with researching the provenance of the works, nor was I asked to provide an appraisal. Instead, I provided two confidential and tentative reports for the collectors, which were expressly not to be used or relied upon by third parties, including for authentication purposes, and could not be disseminated without my prior written consent. In these reports, I rejected nine works outright. I concluded that 11 works could be Basquiat based solely on a review of photographs while reserving the right to amend my opinion upon an in-person inspection, which was never provided. Finally, I determined that possibly seven works may be his, with the caveat that I was relying on evidence from other experts in handwriting and materials slash condition and a provenance insert provided by Mr. O'Donnell. Both reports also clearly stated that they are in no way intended to substitute for a certification of authenticity by the estate of Jean-Michel Basquiat. So it sort of sounded like that she did stay in her limited lane and did her academic thing, but in that in her um, reporting, it seems fairly straightforward that, yeah, you know, they could be, but she was looking at photos and, like, there's so much that goes into authenticating works. Yeah. You know, also the forensic technology they have to do that, as well as, you know, the provenance of paper trails of research they, that they can mm-hmm. do that, you know, she was just saying, you know, it's ticking some of the boxes, but, you know, it could be, but... Yeah. An important part of that is that she only saw photographs. Yeah. You can't gather enough information just from photographs as is. No. So that was interesting to find out in terms of them saying that and being like, she only did it like this. She never got to see the works in person. Yeah. Which is big sus energy. So they wanted to, like, use her name, basically, in a bunch of stuff, and she kept declining. So now to the part of the statement in relation to the exhibition. In February 2022, in brackets, shortly before the opening of the exhibit, close brackets, I again contacted Mr. O'Donnell and Dr. DeGroft to ensure that they were not sharing their reports or misrepresenting my opinions. Mm. I wrote that I was, quote, in no way authorised to authenticate unknown works by Jean-Michel Basquiat. I wanted no involvement with the exhibit and I did not want to be associated with any promotion of the works for financial gain or otherwise. Both denied sharing my reports, misrepresenting my opinions, or using my name in connection with the exhibit, despite rumours suggesting otherwise. Neither were truthful. Yeah, well, not great, not great for so. Exactly. So the report was quoted in the exhibition catalogue. Great. <laughs> and apparently lawyer Pierce O'Donnell was the one to leak the incomplete and misleading extracts to the New York Times. Right. Well, I mean, that's sort of fitting with the character of Pierce O'Donnell that I was created in my mind from everything I've heard so far. And this is when Dr. DeGroft makes the threats as well, is after she clearly notices these things and has, like, seen her name flying around in relation Mm. to this and then is threatened with blackmail. Mm. Uh Uh-oh. Not great. She puts out this statement, pretty complete. She also mentions in it that she's not going to be like making any more like comments to the media about this mm-hmm. they need to go away this is what she said she does believe that she's been mischaracterized in the reporting of this and through statements made by the individuals involved uh-uh. she just yeah. wants to do a little job and now she's been caught up in all this nonsense you know we're not having a good time in july no later in july there are a lot of articles that are released detailing that Aaron de Groft actually has a history of acquiring unremarkable paintings at auction and then attributing them to masters. Wow. Well, that's that's a red flag. It's done it before. going to do it again. And I think, like, you know, the zinginess of that is probably something that helped him get the job at the museum. Yeah, true, true. He says he still stands by. This is the best part. So the Observer does an interview with him after he's been fired. 
this interview with the observer is very brief and happens via LinkedIn. Can you do, is this, oh, I heard this is like a little comment thread that they're just like going back and forth on, like you do on Facebook in like 2009 because like yeah. Messenger hadn't been invented yet. Yeah. And this is, this is a good use of LinkedIn. And then when the observer had follow-up questions, he mm. didn't answer them. He says, I'm not talking to any media for a while until I am vindicated. Right. <laughs> vindicated, that's a strong word. That's a strong and very dramatic and theatrical word. So in his previous workplaces, which are like the Moscarell Museum of Art, he acquired an alleged Cezanne at auction that was unattributed. And then when they did scientific testing, they could not authenticate it. But he believed that it was a Cezanne. Mm -hmm. There's also a Titian work that he looked into and submitted for scientific testing, but the authenticity cannot be guaranteed yet. Okay. Okay. So he does have a little bit of the history of this, mm-hmm. I guess, which also does not help his case. <laughs> Branding gone bad. Mm, not great. It's not looking good. However, I would like to mention how Pierce O'Donnell seems to have committed a crime and still gets to be a lawyer. Yeah. Whereas the Orlando Museum director, you know, he, he, he didn't commit a crime, but, you know, he's lost his job. He's just, just not good at authenticating works. He's just bad at it and maybe shouldn't have been the director of a museum. No. And then on the 18th of August, our fave, Cynthia, puts out an op-ed with the Orlando Sentinel, which is on like LinkedIn? the local paper. No, she went through the local paper. Oh, right. Because <laughs> why would you go through LinkedIn? <laughs> they announced that uh, they would be reevaluating all exhibitions planned by Aaron DeGraft. <laughs> Um, if you like, ever like you know, left your job and they're like, we need to look at everything you ever did mm-hmm. to make sure it wasn't completely false. Basically, they have to step back hugely in order to like regain trust, right? And regain yeah. legitimacy. Yeah. So they're just really looking into everything and being like, we need to look at all this stuff and we need to prove to you that we're legit. Mm-hmm. Also, like, the tone of this op-ed is very, like, sheepish and it's, oops, we made an oopsie, but also, like, we were bamboozled too. Yeah. Because it begins with, last year the Orlando Museum of Art hired a new executive director and CEO who came highly recommended and well-credentialed. Yeah. (laughs) Along with our new director came the promise of new and remarkable exhibitions for the OMA. Imagine Mm. the excitement generated internally and throughout the community when we, with the new director, announced that OMA would open a significant, never-before-seen exhibition of works by world-renowned artist Jean-Michel Basquiat called Heroes and Monsters. We were bamboozled too. Have they not heard of the phrase, if it's too good to be true, it's not true, it can't be true? God, the art world could learn that a little bit. Yes. Too much money, not enough sense. So the OMA board and staff continue to feel the embarrassment from FBI's seizure of the works in the Heroes and Monsters exhibition and subsequent negative attention. We are continuing to process and grapple with the notion that something we were so happy about has become the source of ill will within the museum family and our beloved community. No. Yeah. Um, they have formed a task force led by OMA trustees Mark Elliott and Nancy Wolf to help vet exhibitions. So she also announces the return of Dr. Luda Whitlock as interim director to help them in this tumultuous time. Yeah, great. Little announcement. We've got someone helping them out. So this is an article that was published on the 18th of August. Mm-hmm. I think one would presume that Dr. Whitlock was brought in shortly after the ousting. Yeah. Or at least the fact that he was already in mind when the board were planning on ousting. And yeah. I'd like called him up and being like, hypothetically. Hypothetically, if our current director is very bad at his job and has never done it very well and has a history of putting together exhibitions of fake works, would you be interested in a job? Hypothetically. Yeah. In the interim. A mm. secondment, if you will. Yes. We've got a brand exciting new opportunity. Do they post this on LinkedIn? Was this also through LinkedIn? Oh, I don't know whether or not they announced it on LinkedIn. One <laughs> assumes they would, given how much they love it. And then Dr. Luther Whitlock decides to resign on the 24th of August, six days after this op-ed. So how long? So he'd been there? For less than two long. months. Less than two months. Although with the current recent announcement of 
Liz Truss in the UK, two months is a solid effort. Like <laughs> Liz Truss was 44 days, so less than two months' territory. <laughs> so, you know, that's yeah. fun. That's fun. Really great for the museum and their, like, stability. Mm, yeah. They're... Someone please do their job. Human resources. Yeah, just just someone do something. Yeah. And then ex-trustees also say that they were kept in the dark about the FBI probe. Mm-hmm. And they believe that they were bamboozled as well. Bamboozled. Bamboozled. <laughs> we, just, we were just too trusting. That kind of brings us to the present day. Right. The aftermath of this is still kind of like messy, but a lot more quiet now. Not as many loud, loud hollering. There is a blogger on Medium called Anita Marie Sinkowski, who is still covering any kind of small updates. And it does seem like they were pretty fundamental in releasing and finding all the documents that were talked about and that the New York Times used. It is on her Medium page that I was able to see this (laughs) LinkedIn screenshot. (laughs) Thank you. So that's fun. And it does seem like there are still people trying to profit off of this. So there is some shenanigans in relation to Jean-Michel Basquiat and how valuable his works are, basically. Yeah. So the selling of fake Basquiat paintings is not going to end anytime soon, I think, <laughs> no. is the result that we can draw from that. No. And, I mean, I believe his work still is, like, the most expensive work to have sold at auction by a contemporary artist, I believe. I think that tracks, yeah. His work are still selling, like, Sotheby's has an upcoming auction that has a Basquiat work that they think will sell really promisingly. In 2017, one of his works sold for $110.5 million. Yeah. So that's pretty up there. The New York Times has also reported that if the 25 works that Mumford allegedly had were legit and this story was true, the Putnam Fine Art and Antique Appraisals would consider them to be worth about $100 million pull up. So I guess when there's higher the value of work, the more money that's involved, the more likely. Mm-hmm. Well, the more tempting it is to make those fakes. You know, it's profitable, perhaps. Yeah, it's very much shaken up. Yes. Everything. From the outside, it's hard to know what the Orlando public think of this. Mm. But I did find a very interesting um, letter to the editor that someone wrote to the Orlando Weekly. Oh, lovely which does indicate that they're not happy with how this has gone down. No. There are some things that I haven't been able to, like, find in big official articles, but it seems like more things have been happening. And we will rely on the Orlandians <laughs> to uh, tell us. So they, they, they frame the shenanigan this way. Yeah. Um, anatomy of the dumpster fire. <laughs> <laughs> Already off to a cracking spot. The crisis did not end when a crisis management firm was contracted, in brackets, great decision, awful execution. <laughs> the crisis did not end when Luda Whitlock was brought back, red flag. The crisis did not end when Luda Whitlock resigned, huge red flag. The crisis did not end when the now former chair penned an op-ed for the Orlando Sentinel, fuel on the fire. That's the one we read. The crisis did not end when the now former chair Stepped down, yet remained on the board. More fuel on the fire. The crisis did not end when board members Mark Elliott and Nancy Wolf were appointed to head a task force. Inactivity in the face of crisis is fuel on the fire. The crisis did not end when board members cried that they were kept in the dark. More fuel on the fire. The crisis did not end when board member Mark Elliott was appointed chair of the board, possibly not in accordance with the bylaws. More fuel. The crisis did not end when newly appointed Chair Mark Elliott apologised but took no responsibility. Is he sorry for what happened or sorry that they got caught? I think the latter. So then it does seem like there is the involvement of an outside local law firm to conduct some kind of review on the museum. Yeah, great. Someone someone needs to. (laughs) This fun-loving dumpster fire witnessing individual kind of sees this as maybe, once again, the board trying to pass off accountability. Yeah, yeah. I would love to know whatever crisis management firm they hired because I don't think 
nothing seems to resolve. And I also don't quite know how it can resolve. Like, I don't know what a good outcome is to all of this. Mm-hmm. Better hiring practices, you'd hope. Yeah. So we'll see if anything else comes out from this mm-hmm. and we will update you if it does. Yeah. But all in all, a lot of mishandling happened. Yeah. The only person in this who gets away, like, pretty cleanly is Dr. Luda Whitlock, who came in, looked at the mess, <laughs> and then was like, mm, no, not no, for me. Not for me. Yeah, I think that's probably the only good decision that was made in this entire situation. They, you know, they saw, they're like, mm, mm, no. Um, yeah, good for, good for them for getting out of that. Yes. Obviously, this is a very strange situation. But it is kind of representative of the fact that, like, national institutions really want big exhibitions. Yes. The real crime is the blockbuster exhibition. Is that what you're alluding to, Michelle? Yeah. Who committed crimes here? Because the blockbuster exhibition. The thirst for a blockbuster exhibition is the crime against art. Yeah. Clearly. We do not know of any kind of forgery. No. Any detail of, like, who could have done this has not come out. However... I think there is some kind of legal line that you would be able to use to charge the owners and probably de Graft with something. Yeah, like misrepresentation. Like it would. Willful misrepresentation. Willful deceit. Willful. That's such a great phrase. Willful deceit. So we have both types of crimes here. And it's just such a surprise, I think, that it's been so long. Like, from 2013 to now, the FBI has been on this, and yeah. yet all of this still happened the way that it did. Yeah, and it's not going to be resolved anytime soon, really. No. What are your final thoughts on everything? My final thoughts are poems are a legitimate form of record keeping. LinkedIn is cursed, and blockbuster exhibitions are the root of all modern art crimes. It's the root of so many art crimes, mm. truly. But I'm, <sighs> I'm glad that so many Orlandians got a good museum gift shop experience at that exhibition. It had a good impact. It had great outcomes, measurable outcomes, that exhibition. Yeah, I think so too. This is going to be a much messier one to sum up, except for saying, like, a lot of bad actors. Yes. <laughs> there was more than one bad apple in this bunch. And I think surprisingly in this story, Larry Gagosian is not a bad actor. <laughs> Truly one of the greatest surprises of the story. Larry Gagosian is actually, has not done anything dodgy. I know, I was thinking about it and I was like, so this, this thing would have happened behind his back, but currently it's looking like it didn't happen at all? Yeah. He, it's, it's, it makes sense. <laughs> Like, like he, he, he was just vibing and got pulled into this? What? <laughs> so hopefully there will be updates on this, which we will inform you of. Hopefully they are... Do we want them to be, like, like spicy updates, like bad for the museum updates or, like, good for the museum updates is now the question. Yeah, that is right. Um, well, I feel like it can't get much worse for them. So I don't know whether any further updates could be much spicier than what's happened. Mm-hmm. I would like some wholesome updates from Orlando. Yeah. Let's hope for some wholesome updates from Orlando. Let's hope that they figure something out. Let's hope that uh, the changes are made. Let's hope that the board figures out what its purpose in life is. Yes. <laughs> like its functional purpose in the museum. Yes. That would be a good place to start. And let's hope that from there they get to put on a lovely little yeah. swanky exhibition, not necessarily a blockbuster, but a nice, yeah. interesting one that people will like to visit. Maybe an exhibition of, you know, emerging contemporary artists in Orlando. I think that's what I want for the people of Orlando. Yeah, something yeah, a bit good. of place-making in the museum. Just, like, re-engaging with the community. Yeah, very good. Well, talking about engaging with the community, how how can our community engage with our podcast? There are many ways that you can do it, and hopefully you have seen seen us around. You can find Crimes Against Art on Instagram and Twitter at Art Crimes Pod. Crimes Against Art is also part of the Edge of the Crowd network. You can find our videos on YouTube at Edge of the Crowd, and Edge of the Crowd's Twitter and Instagram will also be 
uh, vehemently plugging us as well as the rest of the podcast from our network. And you can also read any of our articles about art, culture, sport, politics mm-hmm. on edgeofthecrowd.com. So where can we find you, Isabel? You can find me on Twitter at BellLake5. That's B-E-L-L-A-K-E. Numeral 5 is where you can find me. You can also find me on LinkedIn if you would like. <laughs> and we can chat over a little LinkedIn comment if, if that's what you're after. How about you, yeah. Michelle? Give some major announcements only in the comments because yeah. um, who Not does announcements in posts? Just the comments. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> well, you can find me on Instagram at m.ch.ll.g and you can find me on Twitter at m underscore ch underscore ll underscore g double underscore. Um, do, please do not find me on LinkedIn. I do not like to spend time on LinkedIn. <laughs> please do not find me here. <laughs> <laughs> please, like, unfortunately that has revealed that I maybe do have a LinkedIn. But please do not find me on there. Please do not find me. <laughs> so, yes. And I think that's all from us. This has been Crimes Against Art. Uh, we will see you next week with some more fun shenanigans. I'm looking forward to chatting.